Let's pray. Dear God, we do rejoice. We do give thanks. We do sing with that joy that you've instilled in our hearts because of the glorious, great news of salvation that we have in Christ, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So our hearts are filled with joy, God, this this Sunday morning, thankful once again that we get to be here. And now, God, as we approach your word, we are also happy, we're glad, we're filled with delight, God, because your word is right, and your word says it rejoices the heart. And that's the heart of every believer who wants to continue to know you and to seek your face and to do your will and to love you more and to do that together. Uh, What a precious privilege it is uh, that we get to do this together as a church family and to reach others with that good news of salvation. Thank you so much, God. I ask that you would bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles back to Mark chapter 9, as I mentioned before. And with a sermon title like today's, which is All Things Possible to Those Who Believe, I think it'll be instructive to just say a a brief word about some of the teachings of the prosperity gospel, also known as the Word of Faith movement, which Pastor Bill actually touched on a little bit in Sunday school class. Some of us are aware of these teachings, and um, some of us very well uh, aware, but then others, maybe not so much. So prosperity theology, and by the way, you will see a lot of this teaching on Christian TV channels like TBN, one of the most popular ones. It teaches people that God wants us to have everything in life in abundance. Taking God's word out of context It says that Christians, as God's children, are meant to have health and wealth and prosperity. Is that true? No, it's not true. But that's what they teach. That God as our loving Heavenly Father promises those things and He is there to get those things for us. Is that why God is there? No. But this teaching, prosperity theology, it sees the Holy Spirit as a power to be put to use for what we want and what the believer wants. Again, he is there to help us get things that we want and to do our will. this, This type of word of faith teaching has at its heart a belief in the force of faith. Some of you may have heard about that, the force of faith. The leaders teach that our words can be used to manipulate this faith force and thus actually create and bring what they believe Scripture promises, health, wealth, and prosperity. If you have enough faith, strong enough faith, you can name and claim God's promises into existence, and they're yours. This is wrong teaching. But it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds really good, right? It's kind of like power of positive thinking, and you just think things... And uh, they'll, they'll, they'll be, as long as you think it and feel it and believe it strongly enough, you'll, just, you'll get abundance. Obviously, if it sounds too good to be true, uh, 
it's, it's probably, probably not true. Hey, the main problem with this teaching is that it's not biblical, right? It doesn't come from God's truth, God's gospel, God's word. It's, it's actually nothing new, but it's damaging and it's damning. Okay, it's, um, it's like some of the destructive sects that were in, in early church history in the biblical times. Okay, these greedy uh, teachers that invaded the early church. Right Back then, it's, it's the same old story. People always want what they want, and they'll listen to things because that's what their, their flesh wants. And so because of the spiritual threat to Christians, Paul and the other apostles, Jude, John, Peter, all, almost all of them, they strongly opposed these heresies. They identified the dangers of these false teachers and false teachings, and they exhorted believers to, to avoid them, to run away from them. Related to what I've already briefly mentioned, another favorite term of prosperity teachers is, is called positive confession. Positive confession. It's pretty much the same idea. That words themselves have creative power. Okay, what you say in faith, it determines everything that happens to you. So your confessions, okay, especially those requests and favors that you demand of God, they must all be stated very positively and without wavering. And if that's done, then God is obligated. He's required to answer. Okay, in other words, God's ability to bless us is dependent on that positive faith, that positive belief that we will receive his blessings. Okay? Once again, folks, this is wrong, unbiblical, false teaching. And a lot of people, many, 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 many people, this is kind of... This is sadly what, what the um, Pentecostal uh, American Western church has, has uh, exported out into the world, and especially in many poor parts of the world, uh, this kind of teaching. And um, it's doing untold damage uh, to, to people's souls. And that's why the Bible warns against it. We need to continue to warn against it as pastors and teachers to guard the flock. And so... I bring all that up because um, we want to see how, how does this line up with, again, the title of today's sermon, um, All Things Possible to Those Who Believe. Because it sounds like those two things are, are pretty similar, well, everything that I just described, right? Well, let's get into our, our text this morning. It's Mark chapter 9. We're going to cover a chunk here, verses 14 to 29. Don't worry, we will get through it in due time, in good time. But Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, if you are able to stand for that amount of verses being read, I will invite you to do so. But if not, that's fine. You can sit down and, and uh, follow along, okay? Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And uh, let's, let's just read it. Verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, they being Jesus and Peter, James, and John, right, coming down from the mountain, They saw a large crowd around them, and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. 
I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, he, the demon, saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Please be seated. So Jesus is teaching a, an important lesson here, okay? a critical lesson about the necessity of faith to access God's power and to accomplish what seems impossible. You have an insert in your bulletin if you're taking notes, and it's on the screen, but that's our kind of big picture idea today. This is the lesson that Jesus teaches, the necessity of faith to access God's power, and to accomplish even what seems impossible. And uh, there's three kind of thoughts that, that I want to anchor our, our, our focus on this morning. Um, but before I get to those three things, did you notice those, there's three kind of key phrases that happen uh, throughout this passage? The first one is in verse 19, where Jesus says, "O unbelieving generation!' The next one is verse 23. It's kind of the heart of this lesson and the heart of the passage. And it's the title of today's sermon, pretty much. All things are possible to him who believes. And the last one is in the last verse there, verse 29. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Okay, three key phrases. And so um, just kind of uh, keep that in mind as we go through the passage here. But the first point, the first thing that I want us to kind of anchor our thoughts on is verses 14 through 19, the lack of faith and spiritual power. The lack of faith and spiritual power. As we saw there, as you heard in verses 14 and 15, there's an interesting scene that awaits Jesus and Peter and James and John as they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, right? The other nine disciples were surrounded by a large crowd. There's some scribes arguing with them. What are they arguing about? And we'll see in the context uh, what that might have been. Okay, whatever it was that was causing this heated conversation, when the entire crowd sees Jesus coming, they're what? 
They are amazed. They are amazed. They're astounded. They're struck with amazement, like starstruck. They're in awe. The moment they see Jesus, that word reminds me, some of you may have seen the footage of back in the day when the Beatles came to the United States, right? The Fab Four. They come and, and um, just, just these teenage girls, they, they just, they're shrieking, they're crying, they're fainting. Um, they're literally falling over, right, the, the closer these guys come. Well, that's kind of the, the picture as we've tried to um, just paint the picture for you throughout Mark's gospel. Um, these crowds, always, they're following Jesus. They're, they're just, it's this it's spectacle. It's this amazing thing that's, that's happening. And so the whole crowd sees Jesus. Immediately they flock toward him. Literally, they're running at him. But this was not because, as some have speculated, because Jesus was still shining forth like uh, at the top of the mountain. Okay? Um, it wasn't because that would have killed the whole point of Jesus telling Peter, James, and John not to tell anyone, first of all, right? And then second of all, as we went through the text a few Sundays ago, um, when Peter, James, and John looked back up, just, you know, at, Jesus was there alone and uh, seemed to be in his normal state. So that was over and done with. Um, but the, the crowds weren't drawn to Jesus because of that. But it was simply because he was known as this miracle worker, this miracle maker, okay? this, this demon caster, this healer, this teacher like no other. And so as they come up to him, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing with them? And so who's he asking? Well, the people in general, but most primarily, he's probably addressing the nine disciples. Hey, hey men, what are you discussing with these scribes? Because they're the ones who are arguing, right? None of the nine answers him. None of the scribes answers him. But a man from the crowd of people does. And his answer might give us some clue about what the disciples and the scribes were arguing over. And this man in the crowd, as we see there, describes his son who's demon-possessed. And he gives some of those details about this horrible state his son is in. And it must be really, really heartbreaking for the father, right? Verse 17, 18, the description there, he says, My son, Luke records, my only son. He's possessed with a demon which makes him mute. Matthew writes that he is a lunatic, okay, moonstruck, and he is very ill. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. In other words, his son is in a world of hurt and affliction. And obviously, dad is in desperate, desperate need of help. And who does he go to? Well, he says to Jesus, well, I I brought him to you. But being that Jesus was not present at the time, he, he brings him to the nine disciples. And he asks his disciples to cast the demon out. But but they could not do it, verse 18. They could not. So going back to the disciples' argument with the scribes, it's possible that the scribes saw that Jesus' disciples could not do it. They could not cast the, the demon out, no matter what they've tried. And maybe the scribes are giving them a hard time about it. Okay? Maybe they're even mocking them, scoffing at them. And maybe they're bringing up just different points of theology. Maybe they're arguing and discussing about that. And, um, you know, just remember that these scribes, the scribes were already out to get Jesus. We saw that uh, a while back. Um, They're already plotting with the Pharisees and and the other religious leaders uh, to somehow destroy Jesus. So in any case, what is not happening is that this 
poor dad and demon-possessed son are getting the help that they need. And they're too busy arguing about stuff. So this is the scene that Jesus and the disciples arrive at, the three, after the transfiguration. Verse 19, this is our first key phrase. We're coming up on it. What Jesus utters next is, Oh, unbelieving generation. After the Father just kind of tells him what, what, the, what the situation is, he says, Oh, faithless, unfaithful people. Okay, oh, that oh is like a, um, an expression of lament. It's a, an exasperated cry. It's a, an expression of sorrow, even a, a saddened rebuke. Okay, this was emotionally painful to Jesus, their lack of faith. Okay, he answered them, addressing all the people there, and when he asked those questions, how long must I be with you? How, must, how long must I put up with you? That you there is, is in the Greek, it's plural. So he's talking to not the Father specifically, but it's in the plural. You can't tell that in the, um, in the English, right? So he's saying, y'all, how, much, how long shall I put up with y'all? The Lord's not pleased with the general lack of belief for all these people, of all these people that he's been ministering to for over two years now. So his admonishing words are directed at all these faithless people who are part of the whole scene, including the nine disciples. Some people even say primarily he's talking to them. Okay, it's not that they didn't have any faith in Jesus, but they didn't have faith to be able to cast this demon out. Yes, he's talking to the scribes who didn't believe Jesus. They were rejecting him. Yes, he's talking to the Father, who we will see does have faith, but he also confesses his lack of faith. And Jesus is also telling the crowds in general, okay, Oh, unbelieving generation. So those questions that he asked, they might seem a little bit harsh, but they're actually uh, a bit of a, a reproof. And it's to, it's to bring conviction on them for their lack of faith. For their lack of faith. He knows the hearts of everyone who's there. And in his, in his lamenting, he's asking those pointed questions to jar their hearts, to shake their minds regarding their lack of faith. So just a few questions a couple questions we might consider, dear church, okay, and you individually. In your current walk of faith with the Lord, would Jesus describe you as being part of an unbelieving, faithless generation? Because okay, there's an unbelieving, faithless generation out there. Or would the Lord consider you and me to be one of those rare, faithful ones, okay, one who actually trusts him, Hey, like, like Joshua and Caleb uh, versus the rest of the spies and the rest of the people, right? Second question, as we see that the disciples could not do this, right? That's kind of a, a bit of a sad statement there. As a disciple of Christ, is my lack of faith contributing to a lack of spiritual power? Hey, this is... Um, and just think about the things that are happening in your life, things that are happening in your family, things that are happening in our church family. Okay, as, as us, faith, Bible church, okay, this is kind of the theme here, right? Faith, believing, trust. Faith, Bible church, it's in our church name. Are we collectively a body, a family that is believing in God, full of faith and faithful to his word? Are we together, corporately, collectively, described like that? And do we have that kind of faith that, that God's power can be accessed to accomplish his purposes? Okay, so when people come to Faith Bible Church for help, 
Are we believing God and relying on and trusting in Him for the power to be able to do what might even seem like impossible? Hey, that guy who, who keeps coming, he, he, he's never going to get saved. Right? Like, well, they're just going to leave. Right? What is our faith in? Are we those who can? Or are we like the, the, the nine disciples here, those who could not? And these are, I think, significant questions we can ask as we try to apply the text here a little bit. Okay, but it leads into our next point. The Lord's demonstration of spiritual power. This is verses 20 to 27. The Lord's demonstration of spiritual power. Look what he says there in the second part of verse 19. He says, bring him to me. He tells the crowd to bring this afflicted, suffering, demon-possessed son to him. Bring him to me. There's a, there's a certain compassionate promise built into that command, isn't there? It is a command, but isn't there like this compassion, this, this compassionate promise? I'll take care of it. I'll take care of him. Hey, the emphasis of this passage, folks, uh, and even this miracle that he's about to do, is more on the necessity of the people to have faith Okay, rather than on Jesus' deity. Okay, although that almost goes without saying, right? We've looked at Jesus. We've seen all these incredible things that the king does, who serves. <clears throat> Numerous miracles, remarkable healings, supernatural exorcisms and works and deeds that clearly announce his authority over everything. Jesus is the power. He is God in the flesh. He is the authority over, over diseases, over demons, even over death itself. He has demonstrated that deity. But here, I'm saying that the focus is more on his teaching. Hey, this lesson, this lesson that true faith and belief is essential for accessing God's power and accomplishing what we might think is impossible. Okay, certainly, this situation seems hopeless, doesn't it? It seems like an impossible case. I mean, this poor boy is an absolute wreck. Right? The demon's been wreaking major havoc on his body, his brain, his, his whole being. So they bring the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. I said that was the boy, but it's the spirit in the boy, right? The demon inside the boy immediately recognizes Jesus. It seems he knows that, oh no, my time is up. Right? There's the, there's the signal. For the demon, my time is up. Jesus is here. Time to get out. So what's he do? He vents his rage on the boy. He throws this tantrum. He slams him to the ground. The the boy goes into convulsions. He's caused to violently fall down. He's rolling around. The tense in the scene of that verb is, is very vivid. It's like this continual twisting and turning and rolling over and over, this way and that, while at the same time he's foaming at the mouth. Can you picture it? Hey, like some deranged, insane, uncontrolled person hurting himself. And the question is, is he going to hurt somebody else too? Right? I don't know if you've ever witnessed something like this, but it's, it's quite scary. And Mark and Luke, they do a good job of painting that picture for us. It's a frightening, unforgettable scene. Medically, this appears to be some sort of epilepsy, epileptic seizures, even a grand mal seizure, in which those things, they cause um, just violent muscle contractions and loss of consciousness. They're brought on by abnormal electrical activity in the brain. But clearly, as we read Mark, as we read the Gospels, this was not just a medical condition. 
It was rather a spiritual affliction, a demonic spirit taking over the body and mind of this man's son. One commentator says, quote, The Gospels make a definite distinction between demon possession and physical illness. In this particular case, there seems to be a blurring of this distinction. The symptoms described by the father and the implication of several Greek words in the text imply epilepsy, especially grand mal seizure. This physical element was aggravated or instigated by demonic possession. End quote. I think that's helpful for our understanding of this. Um, a quick aside. A quick aside. Why? Why did this boy get possessed by a demon in the first place? Because okay, the text doesn't tell us here in Mark chapter nine, but it does bring to mind the Gospel of John, right? In John chapter nine, in fact. And it says of the man born blind, the man blind from birth, when the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so what? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. So perhaps a, a similar thing is going on here. So verse 21 This boy is having these severe convulsions, seizures, but Jesus stays calm. He doesn't even cast the demon out right away. First, he has a question for the father. How long has this been happening to him? And this was meant to draw out from the father the long-standing nature of this, this terrible problem and even a chance for the father to express his, his burden, his plight. And this craziness has been going on, he says, since his son was a child. In other words, for the majority of his lifetime. We don't know how old he is now, but um, this has been going on for his most of his lifetime. And dad's further description illustrates the severity of this problem. Hey, the spirit inside his son puts him in harm's way often, he says. Hey, frequently, the son needs to be rescued out of the fire. Hey, they use open flames a lot of times, cooking or heating from burning, so he needs to be rescued out of burning and from water, the, the pools that were around there, a threat of drowning. Yeah, I remember just uh, when our youngest was probably around two years old, and um, me and my wife getting a lot, quite alarmed and shaken up when he, he fell off of a, a swing, and this, this bump on his uh, forehead, and it kind of just made its way down to the rest of his face, and uh, the big chunk of his face like turned blue and green. And uh, that was quite shocking and um, just uh, alarming to us, very frightening. Um, a little later afterwards, after the initial shock wore off, we started calling him the Avatar Baby. But, uh, but imagine just the, this father and the amount of days and weeks and months and years of just needing to rescue and watch his son go through all of this. Well... After he tells that to Jesus, he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. Help us. Hey, the, the father, he believes that Jesus is willing to help, willing to try to get this demon out. But it seems like there's some doubt, right? He says, if you can. Where's that doubt coming from? Well, it's coming from the nine disciples who tried, did everything they tried to do, and they were not able to do it. So he says to Jesus, if, if you can do anything, and notice he says, take pity on us, help us. And again, the, the boy's suffering and affliction 
is the Father's suffering and affliction. And so, what an ordeal. But Jesus answers him and he says, if, if you can, hey, as, as if there's, there's, there's some cause to, to doubt that I, the Lord, hey, the Son of Man, the Son of God, can do it. He's taken aback at the, again, the lack of faith. Hey, this time specifically of the Father here. In light of those countless miracles he had done for the multitudes, there's still some question on his ability. No question about his willingness, but his ability. So the key phrase, second key phrase I, I pointed you to is, all things are possible to him who believes. Hey, this is the heart of the lesson. All things possible to him who believes. So who is that, that one who believes? To him who believes. Who is Jesus referring to? Well, it could be the one who's seeking the miracle, right? Someone who's seeking a miracle, someone who's seeking help, like the Father here. Or it could be people who are trying to help. People are trying to minister, trying to serve, okay? like the nine disciples. Okay? All things are possible to the one who believes. To that one. okay? And so, again, all things? All things, really? Really, Lord? Like... What if I believe that, you know, in the next few months I train really hard because um, I, I want to help the Lakers get back to the playoffs and bring another championship to L.A., right? And I want to, you know, work really, really hard and practice like all day, every day. And I want to be their starting center. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do that. I'm going to make the team, not only make the team, but lead them to glory, right? That victorious championship. All things? How about if I believe really, really hard that, that by, next, by this time next year, I'm going to be a, a multi-billionaire and I'm going I'm to change the, the politics of this state, right, by pouring all this money into... Right? Is that going to happen? If I pray hard enough, I can heal that, that poor, blind, homeless person who I met uh, a few weeks ago and give him sight. Is that going to happen? How about this? If I have faith the size of a mustard seed, I can make a mountain move. Isn't that what Jesus said? Right? It kind of jars our thinking a little bit. Okay, but once again, what would Jesus have us do? Okay, he would have us search the context of this passage. He would have us search the context of the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament, right? In other words, this needs to be understood in light of the whole counsel of Scripture. And so, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, for example, it says, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything, He hears us. Now, I left out the most important phrase there. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Okay, some people ignore verse 14, and they just go to the 15, the second one I read. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. Right? And so verse 15 is informed by verse 14. When John says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, he just said, according to his will. Right? According to God's will. John also writes in his gospel, John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, he says to the disciples, whatever you ask in my name, 
That will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so when we almost all, all of us say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, right? And um, is that so a, a tag at the end of our prayers so that um, it, it becomes like this magic formula? Um, because Jesus just said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Right? Of course not. We need to understand it's it's not like an abracadabra, and so it will magically um, bring things uh, to pass. When he says, in my name, and we pray in Jesus' name, we're talking about according to his purposes and his kingdom and his will. Okay? That, for one thing, that's what praying in Jesus' name means. It also means we're coming by his authority and his merits and his worth, okay? not our own. Okay? This is in the authority of Jesus' name, his character, who he is. That's what we mean when we say and we pray in Jesus' name. And lastly, it means for his glory, okay? for the Father's glory. Right? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay? So these things that we ask are all according to that. So this is, this is the way Jesus taught his disciples earlier, right? In Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, they asked him, how should we pray? Right? Part of it was, pray that your kingdom come, Father, Heavenly Father, and your will be done. Your will. This is the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was agonizing before he goes to the cross, right? Let this cup pass from me. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. Again, this is quite contrary to that false name it and claim it teaching, okay, the false teachings of the prosperity gospel, word of faith movement, etc. Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. Okay, so even the seemingly impossible things are possible okay, to the one who truly believes in accordance with God's will and purposes. That's the key in accordance with God's will and purposes. So, once again, moving a mountain from here to there. Okay? Was Jesus' point in saying that in Matthew 17 and elsewhere? Like, like saying, hey, disciples, um, you, can, you can actually move mountains and change the topography of the land. Right? Like, what would, what would happen if, if, uh, if I actually did that? Right? If that actually happened when I prayed for you know, Santa Monica Mountains to move? Right? Would people glorify God or Christianity or Jesus? Or, or, or would they glorify me? Okay, they'd probably be more amazed about me. And the other thing is, if you really did do that, a lot of people would probably blame you for this, or God or Christianity for damaging the environment right? or, or contributing to a catastrophic you know, climate change somehow. But how do you know? How does this poor father know that his son's healing is in God's will and purpose? And this is a a very overwhelming, insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable situation. How how does he know that this is in God's will and purpose? How would you know about some seemingly overwhelming, insurmountable situation in your life? Well, again... All things possible to him, to the one, to those who believes. It starts with faith. 
starts with trusting in Jesus. Okay, believing in the one true God starts with salvation. Starts with repentance from your sins. If you're not a believer, if you're not a true Christian, if you're not born again, you need to start there. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died so that you could be forgiven. He actually bore your burden on the cross. He took your penalty, he took your punishment so that you could escape judgment. And all it takes is for you to turn from your sin and put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the resurrected Savior who is the resurrection and the life. And he promises life eternal for all who would simply place their trust in him completely. It starts there, but then it's, it's praying that his will be done, trusting in his promises according to what you know of his character. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, praying, believing that. Hey, and this is a process. It's an ongoing process of lining up your will and thoughts with his that are revealed in his word. So you begin to, to want what God wants. The more you learn of God, of his, his attributes, his character, his nature, the more you know his word, ultimately your, your, your will, your own will, your desire is that he would receive praise and glory through whatever happens, okay, whatever outcomes, whatever he decides. And that's how you know your, your, your will is, is like God's will is, is lined up with yours, yours is lined up with God's. Okay, after I got saved, I was praying hard for my then girlfriend, now wife of almost 22 years. And it was uh, a couple years of fervent, desperate prayer. And yet, in the beginning, it was prayer that she and I could just stay together. And uh, I just, I still loved her, and I just wanted us to be together. But soon it became less about us, less about me, even less about her. Okay, over that time span of two years or so, it became more about God. And I didn't even know the words. I was like a new Christian. I, I didn't know what it meant to glorify or, you know, Pray that God would be glorified. But that's what I wanted. That was my, my heart. And just God's will was, was being done through all of that. So, by the way, it's not always a yes, okay? Maybe we'll get to that. Maybe not. Um, but we will because Jesus has lots of lessons to teach in these next two chapters, like I said, and one of them is prayer. But so to him who believes, this is having faith, okay? It's, it's, it's not even the size, it's not even the quantity of faith that Jesus is talking about here, but it is truly, actually believing. All God's purposes are good and that his almighty power can accomplish what seems humanly insurmountable, okay, if that is his will. All things are possible to the one who believes, the one who's putting their faith and trust in the right object, and that is God himself, that is Jesus Christ himself. Listen to this uh, one scholar says, quote, the power of faith was placed over against the father's doubt. Okay, to him that believes, this was a challenge to the father to have faith. He was assured that all things can be done for the one who is characterized by faith. Listen, one who has faith will set no limits to the power of God. Okay, I thought that was a money quote right there. One who has faith will set no limits to the power of God. But the faith that has such mighty results will submit to the will of God in making its petitions. A faith-prompted prayer asks in harmony with the will of God. 
end quote. Okay, so, so that job, right? that house, that car, God, is it your will for, for me to have it? That spouse, hey, maybe we're not married. Maybe that, that big exam coming up, that situation in my life, that trial that I'm going through, faith, one who has faith will set no limits to the power of God. And our, our prayers, our, our faith-prompted prayers are in harmony with his will. What does the Father say? Well, he actually cries out, I believe, I believe, help, help me, help my unbelief. What a reaction. Right away, right away, with the little faith that he did have, Dad cries out to Jesus, I do believe, I, I do have faith. But help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my lack of faith. Help me with my doubt. Okay, some, some have called this the most human prayer in the Bible. Okay, this poor dad, he confesses to having faith in Jesus. And his plea for help with his unbelief, wow, what, a, what an honest, humble cry, right? In desperation, he implores that Jesus give him whatever he's lacking in his faith. And I think almost all of us, all Christians, to some degree or other, okay, in certain situations, can relate to this, right? Some mixture of faith and lack thereof. Well, as we've been going through this amazing text, perhaps some of you have been thinking of things in your life or maybe some things in the past that seem impossible to solve. Examples of the seemingly impossible, some overwhelming issue with no apparent human solution. Maybe there's some couple lessons we can learn here. And I just want to bring a couple up. Um, how about unbelieving family members, their salvation? Okay. I'm with you in that. If that's your heart uh, this morning, your burden, something that seems impossible, that, that family member who keeps rejecting the gospel. Um, and we're brought to mind uh, Mark chapter 10, right? And the rich young ruler and just uh, him walking away. And then Jesus saying it's, it's really, really hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Disciples are blown away by that, right? Then, then who can be saved? And what does Jesus say, right? With people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I, I remember that time and time and time again when I think of friends, unbelieving friends um, and unbelieving family members who I've tried to share the gospel with and have shared, and they are not yet saved. How is this going to happen? Well, potentially, and all things are possible with those who believe. So prayerful, dependent faith in God, right? Trusting God's wisdom, his sovereignty, his goodness, his power, his timing, and also his perfect will and purposes. Okay, they are for the glory of his own name. In fact, part of what's working in, in this situation with our unbelieving family members and friends is that God is sanctifying you. He's sanctifying me. That's part of our growth. It's part of God working all things together for our good. And he says yes, maybe. He might say no. He might say you still need to wait. He, sa- he might be saying it's, it's not going to happen until after you pass. He might be saying it will happen in your lifetime. 
but he is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him. And ultimately, it's for his own glory. So what should we do? Well, we should do what Jesus said to the crowds and what Jesus said to the Father here in Mark 9. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Keep bringing your unsaved family members in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Keep doing that, believing, trusting. Hey, just like it's me with my, my dear, now godly, sweet wife. And um, I would encourage you by, by saying the, the family member in, in my experience over this last 20 years or so, um, who was at first most violently against me and against the gospel, and um, with just, you know, just uh, incredible fury, which was expressed in uh, many, many hurtful and um, just uh, not biblical and not godly words. Um, at this point, he was the one who seemed most unlikely to have any any uh, receptivity to the gospel. Uh, this day, 20 years later, he's the one with the most receptivity. And so just uh, an encouragement there. Um, marriage difficulties. How about that? You know, some, some might be thinking, uh, I'm, I'm never going to have a, a happy marriage. I'm never, never going to have a good marriage. He will never change. Or maybe she will never change. And maybe you're, you're stuck in that mindset, and I feel for you, if that's you this morning. Um, but we need to compare that to Scripture, okay? that kind of mindset, that kind of thinking. Uh, compared to today's lesson, all things are possible to him who believes. Okay? Seems impossible sometimes that our marriage difficulties and our relationship and our conflicts are ever going to get better. Um, but to him who believes, listen, if you don't believe it's going to happen, it's, it's probably never going to happen. Okay, that's one thing. Um, but if you believe, trusting in Jesus, praying in faith for your marriage, okay, to be honoring to God, to be glorifying to Christ, um, because it's Jesus who you're praying to and God Almighty that you're trusting in, okay, all things, even that, are possible. All things are possible. So what should you do? Again, do what Jesus says. Bring it to me. Bring this conflict, bring this relationship, bring this heartache to me. And just by the way, you might want to watch out because God just might change you instead of changing your husband. Or he might just change you instead of changing your wife. And that will be part of the answer to the prayer, perhaps. Other things that might seem just overwhelming, can't get over it, okay, overcoming that stubborn sin, okay, whatever that long-standing sin that, that, that you've been dealing with, right? Maybe, maybe you have this uh, particular burden for our church, the, the growth and health of our church. Okay, it's definitely a burden of my heart. What, what should we do, folks? Our sin, our, our church life, our family life, anything. These things that seem impossible, like they're never going to change. In faith, we bring it to our Lord. We present it to him, and we keep doing that. We persist. We persevere. We, we ask him to help our unbelief. Spurgeon has some simple yet helpful questions here. Quote, he says, 
What can we not believe? Is everything possible except believing in God? Yet he is always true. Why do we not believe him? He is always faithful to his word. Why can we not trust him? He says, when we are in a right state of heart, faith costs no effort. It is then as natural for us to rely upon God as for a child to trust his father. But the worst of it is that we can believe God about everything except the present pressing trial. This is folly. Come, my soul, shake off such sinfulness and trust thy God with the load, the labor, the longing of this present, this circumstance, this burden, this overwhelming difficulty. This done, all is done. End quote. So, when Jesus sees that a crowd is coming and I don't know, maybe there's another crowd on hand and they're coming or as they're having this, this discussion, some of the crowd weren't paying attention, but when they sense that a miracle is about to happen, the crowd that was there comes up, they start running back to see the thing. In any case, Jesus, he's, for the most part, folks, he's through with this public healing and teaching and miracles. Okay, and There's still going to be some, but that part of his ministry is dissipating and he's going to be more teaching now. Okay, That's what's coming up in the next Wow, but here he does demonstrate his spiritual power. In his humanity, he does everything by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner, Jesus says. He's demonstrating faith which has full access to God's power, faith that accomplishes the seemingly impossible. And so he addresses this defiled spirit, he commands him. He says it's a deaf and mute spirit, so this is part of the afflictions of this boy. And um, he just commands the demon to get out. And never come back. So one last violent tantrum. The kid is just suffering there. He's, he's convulsing on the ground. But after the, the, the spirit departs, the demon departs, the lad is, is dead still. Most of them thought that he's dead. They were saying that to each other. He's, he's still as a corpse. And uh, I, I love the, the tenderness here because it says, but Jesus. But Jesus, maybe you heard that in my reading. Everyone thinking the boy dead, but Jesus. He takes the boy by the hand. He raises him. He got up. And the boy was able to get up after being knocked out cold at the healing, uplifting touch of Jesus. And he got up, standing on his own two feet. So we've seen the lack of faith and spiritual power. We've seen the Lord's demonstration of spiritual power. And we've seen some, hopefully gain some lessons from that. We have one final short lesson to learn here, the last point, the lesson about prayer and spiritual power. Because when he goes into the house afterwards, and it's this house somewhere up there in Caesarea Philippi, near the mountain there. He's with the 12 now. They're alone with Jesus. The nine disciples, okay, they're rightly concerned about their failure to do this thing. And they ask him, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast the demon out? And it wasn't that they didn't believe. Okay, again, they're true disciples, except for Judas. But they believed in Jesus. And they believed that they could cast out demons. They even had firsthand experience of it. You remember back in Mark chapter 6? Okay, verse 7. He sent out the twelve. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Mark 6, verse 7. And then verse 12 and 13. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons. Okay, so they were capable they had success before. So Jesus' answer to them is simple and telling, and it's a lesson. 
Okay? This kind cannot come out by anything but what? But prayer. But prayer. Basically, they failed because they lacked prayer. And this shows that the disciples were not spiritually dependent on God. And they were not spiritually disciplined in their lives. And I want to say that prayer is not just like remembering to say something to God or ask Him something before, like this big thing happens, right? A big test or big interview or casting out a demon, whatever, right? Um, it's not just remembering to say that prayer. Um, it's more of a, a state of close communication with the Lord. Okay? It's like that pray without ceasing thing, right? That constant close communion with God. As Cranfield said, he says it's the sense of complete dependence on God from which sincere prayer springs. Okay? So this kind can come out by that kind of communion with God a complete sense of dependence on him. So Jesus says to the disciples, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. It indicates that even though the nine had faith in him, they did not exercise that faith in this case. Their faith was in the wrong things. It was in themselves. It was in their own power. It was in what they had done before because they were casting out demons before. Right? So sometimes we fall into that, don't we? We like really, really pray for, for things that are just maybe really hard or a difficult situation or, or something. And uh, we pray to do well in that big exam coming up. And then we get a good result, right? A, a good outcome. And we praise the Lord. But then the next time something happens, maybe it's a bigger thing, maybe it's a lesser thing, and we're not quite as prayerful. Right? We're not quite as connected to God. We're not exactly believing and, and depending on him, but we just think, oh, I, I got through that before. I'll, I'll get through this next thing, right? And so this is the case with the disciples. They failed because they were not relying on God for the power that they needed. And it showed in their lack of prayerfulness. Okay, this kind comes out. When, when Jesus says this kind, it implies that there's, there's different um, levels of demonic spirits strength and and um and evilness okay mark 12 verse 45 it says takes he takes seven spirits more wicked than itself speaking of a demon that got out of a guy and comes back in more wicked than itself so the lord's lesson here is that they could not cast this demon out because of their lack of prayerful reliance on god okay, their access their access to his strength and power was cut off so what's the quick lesson for us folks Okay, basically, we need to be prayerful. We need to have that pray without ceasing heart and communion with God. We need to pray. We should not rest on our laurels after some spiritual success or victory or after doing something good. We need to seek God's face. We need to seek God's will, as we talked about before, and his strength. Okay, prayer, as many have said before and I've said before, it's an expression of dependence complete dependence on God for everything. Okay? Prayer is us confessing that. We're dependent on you, Lord. We're not dependent on ourselves. So James 5.16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So in closing here, okay, may we not be found to be like the Lord's disciples, 
unable to do his work because our faith was not focused in on God, and that we were trusting in ourselves, trusting in the past, okay, good or bad. Right? May we as a church be able to minister and serve and help and love those around us. Okay, rather than they could not, okay, let, us, let us be encouraged this morning to be those who could, who could, but not in our own strength and power, but believing, believing in God, believing in our Lord Jesus, learning the lesson that faith is absolutely essential to access his power and to do his work. Let us trust him. Let's pray. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that as we consider the situation which the gospel writers bring to our attention this morning, uh, we know that elsewhere that Jesus healed many people who actually didn't even have any faith. But here that the lesson is, is connected to faith. And that was the lesson the disciples needed at that time and for the future that the power to do his work is going to come by believing prayer and continual and complete dependence on you. So thank you that we get to learn that same lesson this morning. The same is true for us. God, we are, we are needy. We are weak. We are, we are dependent, but we don't always act that way. We act like we're strong. So, Father, I pray that you would just uh, challenge and also encourage us uh, as we walk by faith, um, Lord, that you will accomplish Great things, not because of us, but because you are a great God and you are the power in it all. And uh, we will give you all the praise and glory for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.